You're listening to. Whoa! Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast uh, featuring literature from Asian and Asian American authors. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Marvin Yue. Joining me is Rira Yu. And today we have a special guest to help us discuss this month's pick, which is uh, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. Ani Tamasic, how's it going? Good. Hi, guys. Um, Ani is Rira's friend and the leader of her other book club. Rira does dabble in other book clubs besides us. Yeah, you make it. You make it sound like it's a bad thing. Like I'm cheating I'm on. Very this book jealous club. right now. How dare you? Yeah, we're both <laughs> we're both a part of the Bad Bitches Book Club, and we read a lot of books with strong female characters or written by female authors. Yeah, I think um, hey. for our track record so far, we've only read books written by women. Uh, it was our intention to do books written by women, and also and or featuring strong female characters, whether or not they were written by a man or a woman. But we have not ended up having any selections with our little random generator <laughs> that have provided any books written by men. But we, we do plan on doing that at some point. That's awesome. So yeah, let's, uh, should we get started? Yeah, let's get to it. For those of you who haven't read the book yet, uh, what are you doing? Go read the book and then come back to the podcast. You can pause it and uh, spend, it's, it's only 250 pages, so it should, should be a pretty pretty quick read. We'll wait for you. And welcome back. I guess we start, as always, with the summary of the book. Rira, can you, uh, why don't you summarize it for us? So our March pick was When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. And the blurb goes, at the age of 36, on the verge of completing a decade's worth of training as a neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. One day he was a doctor making a living treating the dying. And the next he was a patient struggling to live. Published 10 months after his death, When Breath Becomes Air chronicles the late surgeon's life and shares his reflections on illness, med- medicine, and the question of what makes life worth living in the face of death. Yeah. Ooh. So this was our first uh, nonfiction pick for our book club, our very young book club. Now, we've had two discussions of it so far. This is our um, online discussion now, or the official podcast discussion. Official, um, yeah. So how should we open this? General thoughts? Yeah, general thoughts. Um, I guess when I picked this book, I wasn't really sure what to expect because I knew that it was super popular and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 51 weeks straight. So I was like, okay, is this going to be one of those inspirational cancer (laughs) memoirs? Because there's a lot of those. Um, But I was actually quite surprised. It was a lot more... uh, philosophical i guess more academic than i thought it would be Mm -hmm. i like i thought it was going to be more emotional but it was it was quite a surprise and i liked it what about you marvin um i liked it a lot too uh so a little background on so when i was in college i did take a couple neuroscience classes so a lot of what he was talking about his studies on the functions of the brain and the fundamental questions of you know where our essentially our personality our life comes from and how what happens to the brain affects our you know, our entire being. Um, so it was kind of cool to see those concepts um, revisited again by by Paul, and also um, following his journey because he started out as a literature major and he always wanted to be a writer, and then he went on this journey of searching for the meaning of life. What does it mean to live? And decided that in order to find out, he had to study medicine. So just seeing his like his approach to medicine to science from a very literary um, foundation was really, really interesting to read as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, um, it's, a, it's, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, I picked up this book last summer. I read it last June, and it just quickly became one of my favorite books of the year. And at that point, the year was only halfway over. But then at the end of the year last year, it had stuck with me for six months. And it was 
one of those books that I, I gave to one of my coworkers for Christmas. I knew she would love it. I just told everybody I could that I really, really enjoyed the book. And um, I had found out about it, actually. There's this blog that I follow, um, that I started following when I lived in New York, and now I still follow it as a little bit of New York nostalgia called A Cup of Joe. And it's run by a woman named Joanna Goddard, and her sister, her twin sister, is Lucy Kalanithi, mm. uh, Paul Kalanithi's wife. So she had posted a blog post right after Paul's death about what it was like for her family during that time and what it was like being away from her twin sister just across the country with her being in New York and Lucy being in California, and then linked to the piece in The New Yorker that uh, they had published that was an excerpt from the book. And then Lucy's piece that she had posted right before the publishing of the book, I think last January, January of 2016, which was her writing about what it was like to take the material after Paul's death in the process of getting it published. Uh -huh. So I read all of these behind the scenes posts, I guess, before I got to the book itself. And then it just kind of, it just really hit home. Yeah. I mean, um, so spoiler, Paul died and this, book is actually his essentially his unfinished manuscript right his unfinished book he was going to write before he he passed away um which unfortunately um his disease rapidly degenerated in the last few you know months of yeah. his life he wasn't able to finish it but it was interesting to read this book knowing that it was his you know like you the last the thing ending. he did before he died and the that it was really written as a way i guess to cope and process with what was going on as well yeah um i mentioned in in our last uh book club meetings that um, I don't know, like he seemed kind of distant, like his voice when you're reading it. And I thought maybe it was because um, he was coping with the disease and because he was sick, he wanted to concentrate on other things through his writing. Yeah. Whereas like, whereas like I, I felt like I didn't get all that emotional reading it until I read the epilogue. And I think Lucy Kalanithi, his wife, did a really beautiful job wrapping up the book in kind of like a coherent way. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't the typical cancer memoir where it wasn't as much a record of his life as much as a record of what he wanted to, what he learned, right? What he wanted to impart. And it, a reflection. Yeah, it did feel like a lot of, you know, he didn't go into a lot of his personal stuff. You, you learn about that he had some marital problems, you learn about him having children and his relationship with his family, but a lot of it was, also, was more about his, what led him to become a neurosurgeon, what he learned about being a doctor, what he learned about treating patients in the mind, and then what he learned from being a patient. Well, since we're talking about his journey into becoming a doctor and trying to find the meaning of life, I guess we can start off with part one in the book, yeah. which is, uh, actually, it, it, it's it's pretty ironic. Like, first page, you find, like he describes like how he finds out like he's in the hospital and he knows that he has cancer, but <laughs> like he's like asking his fellow colleagues to do tests that to test for other things. You know, it's like, well, like I might I, like it, it might be stress or it might be this instead. It like it can't be cancer. I think it's so we're talking about the prologue right before the yeah, before the, the first part starts yeah. and where he finds out he describes the events that lead to his diagnosis and how. You know, you kind of get the feeling that both him and his wife, because they're both doctors, already knew what was up, but they still held on to this hope that maybe it was something else. And it does a good job setting up the the like the the core um, themes of the book, which is a lot about hope, right? A lot about how to live, how you should live your life in the face of certain death. Yeah, you can't avoid suffering. Like that's kind of one of the themes that I got from reading the book. Yeah. But yeah, like I I thought that he had a very interesting childhood. Like his like his father was a doctor and that that was like kind of, that was kind of cool to hear because he said I don't ever want to be a doctor. Yeah. Because... And his older brother is a neurologist yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Part one was about it started with him saying he never wanted to be a doctor. He grew up in the family of doctors and then to him what was it? um being a doctor meant being away from your family. Right. Yeah. Because his father, I guess, moved the family to middle Arizona. of nowhere, Arizona, to practice, and ended up just never being home. And like his mom, really was, she was so aggressive in in making sure that her sons had 
great education in this really small town that didn't really have that many resources like they took their psats in las vegas and <laughs> yeah and i'm just like that's like so far away <laughs> it's like a hundred miles yeah, from from kingman yeah which is yeah i really liked his so he did a lot of describing of his childhood right his um you know growing up in the middle of nowhere and um and it's really seemed like he had a lot of fun out in out in the boonies it was really interesting just to read about the parents, especially the mom's like immigrant anxiety. You know, coming from a culture that values education and going coming to a place where education wasn't up to par, um, and how uh, his mom pretty much single handedly revamped the education system of Kingman, Arizona, instituting like AP classes and yeah, yeah, like yeah. I liked how uh, what is it? Paul's friend, who was actually a smart kid. Uh, his guidance counselor told him, hey, you're smart. You should go to the army. And he's like, no, I, I think I'm going to go to Yale instead. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you get the feeling that without the colony being there, that that wouldn't have never happened. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the things about the book that a lot of people talk about is how great of a writer Paul is. You know, if he had lived, probably would have went on to write plenty of really, really great works. Um, and you can tell... That he is really, really well read because he quotes all these like poetry authors and, <laughs> and poetry. <laughs> I have to say, I was I was impressed by his literary knowledge, but I did get pretty irritated with. He all was of kind the, of name dropping yeah. a little bit. I'm just <laughs> like, do you really need to quote this book right now? <laughs> I, I I I think you need to back off a little bit, but I have to keep reminding myself that this is an un this is an incomplete manuscript it he didn't get a second draft like this was his first draft and it makes me wonder what he would have come up with if he had more time or how long it could have been oh yeah yeah i mean i get it you know it's your only book you want to prove that you got the the credentials and the the knowledge so you know you're proving i may be a doctor but i've read whitman I may be a doctor, but I have a master's in English (laughs) from Stanford. That was really funny how, um, so his mom, fearing that her kids will fall behind, right, brings them every single book, no matter how raunchy or advanced, and it really made him love reading, and it actually drove him to major in literature, right? Because it was like a window to the world to him. And um, one of the parts from... um, you know, now I'm actually blanking if this was right between college and high school or college and graduate school. But when he was looking for a summer job and he was applying for an internship, I guess it was right after college. He was applying for an internship to study, I think, monkeys and what yeah. it was, what their social, just anything yeah. scientific <laughs> and factual to do with monkeys. And he decided that he was going to go and work as a chef at a summer camp instead and how working at that summer camp with all these people really taught him more than what he probably would have learned at that other internship, just about life and about how, what makes people happy and how people interact <laughs> yeah. and just him kind of reflecting on, he wouldn't have traded that for the world because just doing something outside of what people are like that, that professor that had told him, yeah, that he was going to be missing out if he didn't take the internship <laughs> because of just the education it was going to give him and the opportunities it was going to give him that sometimes you don't need that that factual basis for anything if it just if it makes you happy if and you kind of tell you can tell from there even in the beginning like he was he's not your typical like nerdy science student right he was and even his pursuit of medicine like from his he was going to be a literature major. He was going to go into academia, right? Because he was searching for meaning through literature, right? I forgot what was the exact, um, his exact words. Well, but, or, um, yeah. One of the quotes that I wrote down was that uh, it was to find answers that are, well, like he, he, he left academia to go into medicine because it was a way for him to find answers that are not in books to keep following the question of what makes human life meaningful, even in the face of death and decay. Right. And that's, pretty much his personal mission and to find that i mean to find that meaning was the reason he took that summer job at the camp instead of at the lab because he felt like he needed to experience life and not just like study it right and it's really um so on the at the same time he was also a biology student and that was actually spurred on inspired by 
like a trashy YA novel he read, read from his, his high school older girlfriend. girlfriend. Yeah, <laughs> his high school girlfriend was just yeah. like, was just like, you keep reading these highbrow classics. Like, here's some trash. You need like. Like, be a human for once. And then he reads it in one night. Yeah. And he comes back and he's like, this was utter garbage, but I finished it in one night. And it changed the course of his life. Yeah, Yeah, it changed the course of his life. But then you find, like, through, like, probably some, like, cheesy sci-fi trope about, I don't know, like, humanity or something. But it sparked something that, hmm, let's find out more about the brain and the soul or, like, where the soul lives or something like that. I mean, I also think, like, his decision to, like... Because, like, his thesis for his English, like, his master's in English was actually very scientific. And <laughs> his professors and, and, and the thesis panel, they're, they're saying, like, oh, this is good, but uh, it doesn't really quite fit. And it's a recurring theme that, like, his interests don't necessarily line up with the interests of his peers, no matter where he is. You know, when he was getting into um, literary academia, he learned that most of his peers are more interested in other things, getting published, non-scientific pursuits. Um, and even when he was in med school, he realized most of his peers were interested in lifestyle lifestyle they, yeah. jobs, like dermatology or some nothing that you know. He was saying that being a neurosurgeon, you had to you had to really believe in something else. Like it's not a job; it's not a good job. The hours suck. You don't get paid as There's so much stress. Much. You don't get paid as much. Like, there's no reason if, you, if you're looking for a career as a job to take like, neurosurgery. Yeah. So, like, his transition into neurosurgery, I thought, I thought it was really, um, like, he had a very different approach to being a, a neurosurgeon. Um, he thought that as, as a doctor, his job, his duty was uh, to make sure that he, like, understands what his pa- what what his patients value the most so right because like, like are you going to sacrifice uh i don't know like your your sense of appetite for to live for another five years like it it's important to some people and yeah yeah a lot of the med school and the the internship portion of the book was about him learning what it meant to him to be a doctor right because he you know the, in the beginning there's a part where he talks about couldn't open his first cadaver Mm -hmm. and realizing that some people just saw it as a thing to operate on. And some people saw it as a person. And then, you know, his first rotation in OBGYN, I seen the first baby he ever delivered was um, also his first death. Yeah. Yeah. And just realizing that being a doctor is more than just treating symptoms. It's what was he, he said something about eventually saw akin to being like a pastor. Because when people go into neurosurgery, they're not coming out the same, right? It's very rarely that you'll come out the same. Like, there's going to be some... There will be consequences. Yeah. Like... So it's his job to figure out what's best for the patient and be there for them to talk them through. Like, he said something about, like, you know, being a good doctor is more than just statistics and probabilities, right? Because you, you, think, you think about what patients care about, and it's not like the technical parts about the, the surgery or the procedures. It's... Will I be able to do X, Y, Z? Yeah, like when when a patient has like a tumor in their brain, like they don't really care all that much about like the technical details <laughs> of like how you're going to do the surgery. They care whether or not you're going to yeah. take the tumor out and if it's going to affect something in their lifestyle that means something to them. And um, there's a there's a scene in the book where um, I think it was like an older patient and and he pretty much did everything right. But, you know, he was like, she was just another patient to him, another box for him to check off. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then she passed away like the next day. And then after that, he was like, wait, like, maybe I should have cared more. Maybe I should have asked the patient more questions about like, um, about like how she was feeling rather than just kind of like spew out medical facts and, <laughs> And like he realized that even the paperwork that he was doing as like as a as a resident, like that was important. That was not just paperwork. Like it actually affected other people's lives. And um it's interesting how he took that like took that into stride, I guess, because mm-hmm. he really treated his patients in, in like a very uh I don't know, there was like a camaraderie between him and his patients. And that's um something too that he 
got in medical school, he was talking about how they had one of their donated bodies. And well, and first he even goes into explain how they had to remember that these bodies weren't just corpses that they were working on, that they were told to use the word donor and that the donors had families and these families still were going to be receiving the remains at some point after the students were done and that even the donors didn't really understand what was going to be happening to their bodies once it was once their bodies were given to the medical school that you kind of forget what or just don't understand what kind of it gets violated by <laughs> other people or I think he calls it just like 22 year old smart asses or yeah. something like that yeah. and one of his professors is um speaking with him later about one of the patients or one of the donors that they are working on. And he asks him, well, how old, how old was he when he died? And he answers 74. And his teacher says, that's how old I am. Mm-hmm. Kind of as a way to just remember that even though this person isn't living, they are still a person as well. And so it kind of started too from this whole <laughs> idea that you, you may be training on this essentially what, what what is a tool but it, it isn't it's it's still a person yeah so the first part was all about it was about him coming to his own realizing what what it meant to him to be a good doctor you know he, he spends a lot of time also talking about his peers and how being a doctor is tough you, you're dealing with death all the time you know people cope with it different ways some people cope with it just by being detached but to him it meant something to be more connected to his patients lives Oh, what I really liked about that first part also is um, essentially a bunch of case studies, you know, a bunch of him like sharing what different surgeries do, right? And what the brain does and talking about, you know, he's talking about Wernicke's and Broca's aphasias, which is basically injuries to the brain that affect the language centers, right? Understanding and communicating. Yeah. And and, they, and he mentions that uh, like if a patient comes into the trauma room with... Um, damage to the language part of the brain where they can't comprehend comprehend language or uh or kind of like communicate verbally then doctors say they're better off dead because they can't communicate they're going to be isolated and um, therefore their life kind of becomes sad and meaningless it's much kinder to let them die almost but um yeah you know certain was there was a um a car accident victim, right? Where they were saying that no matter, like, even if we were able to save them, they, it wouldn't be much of a life anyways, because the brain, like a person's being is so much affected by the different parts of the brain. Like even small injuries can affect huge things. Like there's that kid who had a, you know, they, they removed the tumor, but in the process, they slightly damaged his um, hippocampus, which affects um, impulse, control. impulse control. And that kid became like a, that kid came came back, like yeah. in the book. He was a teenager by then, and he was completely different. Yeah, yeah. And he was also talking about how, you know, in neurosurgery, being fast is more important than being accurate. Um, you really come to to realize that not only was he super smart, he was also super skilled. Yeah, he was right? very good at he was very good at what he did, and also, um, I mean, this is this this is a tangent, but we mentioned how like good of a writer he is and yeah. if he was alive today like i i wonder like how many books he would have written but um i found his prose to be all om- like he writes like a surgeon <laughs> it's very precise and like down to the bare bones but just enough to give you like like great descriptive language yeah he talks about a lot of really complex things but in a way that doesn't didn't seem boring didn't seem like a slog to read. No, like for, some of know. the most interesting passages were like him describing how he did surgical procedures on the brain. And I'm like, dang, this is creepy, but like <laughs> I dig it. Like, but anyway, that was, that was like such a tangent. But. Yeah. As opposed to the quotes and the, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for, for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Any other thoughts about the, the first part before we move on to. Well, uh, one scene that stuck out to me in, uh, in the first part was, it was like when he had just moved to Arizona and he goes exploring and there's like a scene where I think it's a log and he pulls it up and there's all these black widow spiders like mm. just crawling out and and like after finishing the book I was like wait that scene that's like cancer you like peel back the skin and it's like <laughs> tumors everywhere but um 
I, I do know that the first part of the book, he it, it was the last part that he wrote. Oh. So he actually um, wrote that part when he was in his most, like when he was in his sickest condition. So I don't know, like it's like I, I feel like the whole reflective quality to it in the first part where it kind of sets up everything yeah. to do with his cancer and like what what he thinks of life and death. Like I think it shows that it, it's, it's the last part that he wrote. It's definitely something that I was thinking about the entire time I was reading the book was, you know, what exactly is, because like, it's not a straight up memoir, but it's also not a straight up academic or medical book. It's kind of something in between or somewhere in between. I don't know. It made it interesting. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Shall and then, we move to yeah, and, the second part? Part two. Part yeah. Two. Part that... two, when he is like <laughs> finishing up his res- residency while he has cancer. Part one leads into part two, whereas part two is all about his his treatment and his um, eventual decline. Yeah, I thought um, there there's a scene with his oncologist Emma, mm-hmm. and she's and she tells him you need to find your values. Right. Like um, this is how you're going to get through this illness. And he responds saying, well, how much time do I have? If you if you tell me I have 10 years, then I'll continue being a doctor. Um, but if you say I only have like two years left, then I'm going to quit and be a writer. <laughs> and she honestly can't give him an exact number because... Well, she could. could she has she has the, 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 the curve, but she but refuses to for the longest huge, time. Though. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting that she knew exactly how to treat him the same way he knew exactly how to treat neurosurgery patients, which is, for her, it was not to give concrete numbers. She's like, what's important to you? Yeah. Do you want to be this big shot surgeon? Because if that's what you want to do and that's your calling, then you need to do it. And I thought that was so, like, that was so impressive because everybody else was like, you, you're really sick. Maybe you should quit. Or like, oh, like residency is really difficult. I like you have to stand for hours and hours. Like, do you think you can do it? And he was even questioning that. He's like, can I can I finish my residency? And yeah. his oncologist was like, you should just do it because it clearly matters to you. And you spent like 10 years studying for this. So why not? And I don't know. It just it just goes to show that none of us really knows how much time we have. And even if we were given a curve, like, like what would we do with that time? Like, honestly, I think, um, like we, we figure out our values by kind of calculating how much time we have left. Um, cause like with Dr. Kalanithi, he had a 40 year plan. Yeah. When time was, limitless he was 20 years to be a doctor, be a doctor slash scientist and 20 years to write yeah mm-hmm. and like being mm-hmm. a scientist like your first uh kind of like big research it takes 20 years because yeah. it's so slow like to to research everything in science so yeah like when your time is kind of cut more than half like how do you deal with it um and i think he dealt with it with a lot of dignity i was actually quite impressed what did you think about the, the his transition from doctor to patient? Mm. Like, because I feel like he did apply a lot of what he learned about patients as a doctor and what he experienced as a patient. I think in the very beginning, like when he knows that he has cancer, like he's still kind of a doctor. He is looking at his own scans. He's looking at treatments. He's um, like he and his wife are coming up with like financial plans to like help pay for all of the medical treatment he's going to get in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, I think when he like fully accepts, like, I feel like he was having a hard time juggling those two roles. You can't be a doctor and a patient at the same time. It's just, it's just too much. Mm -hmm. Um, and his oncologist at one point says, you know, it's okay if you just want me (laughs) to be the doctor. Um, and like after he kind of like gave that responsibilities to her, like his life became much like not easier, but it was it was like lighter, mm-hmm. I guess. Like he he was able to spend more time with his wife rather than look at scans and and constantly look up like new drugs for his own treatment. And like it was it was like kind of 
I don't know, I, like from what I got from it, he kind of blocked off that part of his brain being like, oh, like I'm sick, but I don't need to know how sick. I, I just think, have to focus on what, what's important to me. And I think that ties back into what you were saying earlier about him having these discussions with his patients where if it is affecting something in your brain and they're more concerned, is this going to affect my way of living and my lifestyle versus I don't need the facts and I don't, I don't need you to give me all of these details. Yeah. I just need you to tell me how is this going to affect me in the long run and how am I going to continue to live my life with this illness? He kind of let go of that in a sense as a patient and kind of realized it's more important for me to see what it's like to be with my wife and my future daughter and later infant daughter instead of focusing on these details that really would just have bogged him down. And I thought it was really like, I couldn't help but just like give an exasperated smile (laughs) when uh, like his oncologist is on vacation with her family and he's like stuck in the emergency room after that resident doesn't give him the drug that he needs. And there's the radiologist and then the oncologist, and they're all arguing about what to do because he's such a specific case. And it's just like, nothing gets done. And it's like, ah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like healthcare in a nutshell. (laughs) I think this book really does um, give quite a lot of insight as to like, the responsibilities put on doctors and sometimes it's really not fair Mm -hmm. like what we put our doctors through and it's really not fair what patients go through um due to how the healthcare system is set up right now this may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit but his wife is a doctor as well she's an internist and just how first her relationship with Paul, but then her relationship with Paul as a patient and just how that must have affected her way of practicing medicine too. And how her philosophies, I, I, I do not know this lady, but I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing that her philosophies probably align more with his than with, with some of these other doctors that he is discussing and how for her, it must, it must have been, I guess really changing for her career and her practice just to see no, this is what makes us feel better. Yeah. And not, I'm not, I don't mean literally better, but I guess just having, having Emma as their oncologist who really was a peer for them. But then after the fact, kind of approaching medicine in this way where it's not just another box as we've been discussing. And for her, for such a, for such a common medical practicing group that, She's meeting people who have, you know, have such a range of things. Nothing that it's so specific as what's going on with my brain or my spine. But, but just being, being in this, I just, I guess I wonder how much, yeah. how much yeah. it really affected and changed her over I the think, course of I think the period. There w- I think there was a chapter where uh, he mentions how he met his wife and it was at medical school. And uh, he, he, like, they were studying and they were looking at, like, heart palpitations, like a graph. And... Um, and then she started right. crying because to her, it wasn't just something to study for her test. She could see the person behind uh, the heart monitor, like the heart. Yeah, she realized that the, the person who the CKG belonged to probably didn't survive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, I would say it was probably more painful for her <laughs> because she was I, I think she was like more aware. She was yeah. she seemed to have a lot more empathy for her patients. Reading a lot of this book reminded me of like I I I was really into the TV series Scrubs, mm-hmm. and this is like a big you know a lot of that is the struggles of being a doctor and still caring after X amount of years in the field and still seeing patients as people is was a recurring theme in that series as well, and I think that's that's kind of what I saw when when I was reading through at least the medical stories of the book. Um, and before I came here today, I was trying to do a little bit more just research as far as things that Lucy had published after after this book had been published just interviews and there was one in the New York in the New York Times where she was talking about how it it did affect her practice it was just a very very small paragraph and blurb but she did mention that it it did change the way that she took a look at our healthcare system and just how everything's working now I mean of course this was a year ago you know January of 2016 but even still, it's just going through this whole experience and having that knowledge just affects you just so much more than just, I don't want to say simply being a patient, but than just simply being a patient. Yeah. 
And the book ends on the bittersweet note of him writing a message to his daughter, right? So he survived two years after his diagnosis. And within those, that first year, I guess, they, they decided to have a child, right? And that was a big decision for Paul and Lucy. They decided that they wanted to bring a child, even though it would, he would probably not live to see her grow up. Well, Lucy had even asked him, just when they were trying to make this decision, if this was something that he even wanted to do, would it make his death that much harder for him? And his answer was something like, if... His well, answer his, was, like, wouldn't it be great if it did? Yeah, like, like just under, yeah. understanding that, like, um, yeah, like if it's it's gonna be more painful to say goodbye to a daughter that I'll never get to know, but it also means that that pain like, is something. It's is real. Something. It's real. And I didn't like just waste my the last two years of my life. Yeah. And the last paragraph before the epilogue was like a message to his daughter, saying that no matter what happens, um, your life has meaning because it made my life better. At the end. Like she right? she made a dying man's last moments that much better. And I mean that that last paragraph is really powerful too as a reader because it kind of makes you think that even if even if it isn't your father or a relative or someone who is ill and passing away, really all of us are interacting with so many different people, whether whether or not it is somebody that we are providing a service to or caring for that we should be trying to strive to contribute to their lives in a meaningful way that if it's someone that you say hello to in the morning, that you possibly made their day that much better. Yeah. And just for her, of course, it was on a bigger scale. But I mean, reading that passage, I walked away just feeling like, oh, well, this is something I need to be more mindful of, like something that I don't really think about that often until until it's pointed out to me. And so. Yeah. And it, I think that's, you know, to him, at least for that manuscript, that was his, I wonder if that was meant to be the last paragraph or the end of the book, right? Yeah, considering that he kind of wrote his book backwards. Yeah. Um, I think about how uh, his daughter is going to know him as, like, as a writer. But when he was alive, he wasn't a writer. He was a doctor. And... I also think about how, like, how so many people have read this book and have loved it, and um, you can clearly see that with how much, how many copies that they sold. Um, but it's almost like Paul Kalanithi is still shepherding people now after his death. He's kind of guiding people through, uh, like, I, I guess, like, hey, like, this is what I went through, and this is what a lot of people, other people, might go through when they're facing death, and it's not yeah. something to be afraid of. Combined like, with, like, just here's what I learned from as someone who spent his life studying, who spent his life looking for the meaning of life. Here's what I found, and it makes you wonder what he would have written if he hadn't had cancer. But because he wasn't able to do the research, you know, to like discover, unlock further secrets of the brain. He had to work with what he had, which was his experience and his, what, what he's learned as a doctor and as a patient. Yeah. I mean, there is even a line in the book where he says, uh, like, isn't it ironic that uh, a doctor who is trying to uh, learn the meaning of life is like the best gift for him is to be terminally ill because that is because like that's that's an experience and you you won't learn like you won't learn that from just reading textbooks i mean you're not going to learn that just from literature as he learned when he was you know trying to apply for medical school yeah it it, it forced him to be reflective way earlier than he intended to be yeah yeah, I, I like I do want to like commend him for uh, finishing his residency, mm-hmm. like when he was so sick and and uh, it was it was just really funny because he in, in the beginning he took breaks like I mean, yeah, like hours and hours of standing in surgery is not great for your back. Right. Especially and, when it's like all cancer. Yeah. And uh, I think it was his attending who comes up to him and say, hey, uh, so the higher ups, they're not quite sure what to do with you. What do you mean? Well, you might not graduate. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, hell no. Like, I, I'm graduating. And not only does he graduate, but he's like at the top of his like he's at the top of his game when he finishes uh, finishes his residency. Like, and he has an opportunity for a position, too. 
I believe I, this is the part of the book that I in Wisconsin. Did, I think. Well, I think yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I've been trying to reread in in preparation for today, yeah, and I, I didn't get um, to that that part. But <laughs> yeah, the job he wanted it's at Stanford was taken during his during his absence, mm-hmm. and then someone from yeah from the University of Wisconsin or. Yeah, in like some, some, somewhere yeah. in that area, they offer him a job and they're like, hey, we understand that you have like a good relationship with your oncologist. If you have to fly out, we'll let you fly out. And here's like this beautiful home. And it's just like everything that he would want in mm-hmm. like a job offer. But he realizes at that moment that it's a fantasy. Like cancer can just relapse at any moment. And, he's just, and he realizes that he can't make his wife move away from her support network just so he can like pursue this fantasy mm-hmm. yeah well i'm sorry I, I zoned out a little bit earlier um because i was looking up that that interview uh with lucy in the new york times and so now i have the title for anybody who would like to follow up it's called um keeping dr kalanithi's voice alive and she wrote another piece actually called um my marriage didn't end when i became a widow and both are very interesting and they were they were released in um, as publicity for for the publishing of the book, but there is one paragraph here, Rira, where she mentions that Katie will always know her father as a famous writer, which he was not oh. in life. <laughs> Sorry, that's what made me think of it. I'm like, wait, no, she actually she did say that that um, the interviewer says, my guess is that he will be a mythical figure to her. And Lucy's answer is, I know that's interesting. It's weird, especially now that he's a famous writer. When he was alive, he was not a famous writer, but to her, he will, he will be, he wrote the book to her too. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's talk about the epilogue because, um, the book has a lengthy epilogue written by Lucy kind of filling in the blanks, right? Because at the end of the book, we kind of wonder what happened. We know that he dies, right? Mm -hmm. The, the foreword kind of gives that away. Um, but, you know, um, the details don't come out until the epilogue, which, which was written after his death. When he was too sick to write, basically. Yeah. Um, I actually think that the epilogue made the book. Like, I feel like if the epilogue was not there, I would have get, I would have given this book a much lower rating. Because oh, yeah. I feel like... Because, like, to me, like, it was, it was a memoir, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be... I wanted there to be more of a personal connection, and maybe other people got more of a personal connection to the author than than I did. But, um, like, by the way, his wife is a beautiful writer. Like, she she writes beautifully, and I hope she writes books in the future. But even still, as a way to end the book, it it is the part that made me cry. And I think because of everything, <laughs> having his writing book ended first with that introduction by somebody who didn't know him Verghese. he's another like famous medical Medical writer writer. yeah yeah and and he says that he didn't know paul until after his death or until until quite late in his life and it was he was introduced to paul through his writing and that's how you are also introduced to paul from somebody who is talking about paul's writing and then you read his writing but then you read this piece written by the woman who was planning on spending the rest of her life with him and how how much she just knew about him and how impactful you realize, wait a second, like everything that I'm reading here about what he said, now we're getting her end of the story. And it just, for me, really, that it just really emotionally resonated with me. I mean, we, we've been talking about it the um, for the entire episode, how like doctors... They can't just present the facts. They have to have like kind of like an emotional connection to their patients to be good doctors. Right. And I felt like Paul Kalanithi, he kind of gave me a more clinical, uh, <laughs> like a clinical essay on like what life, like what life is and what death is. Mm. But with uh, Lucy's epilogue, I think it like made me see him as as like a full human being. I mean, like, she she did fill in the blanks. She's saying how the book didn't doesn't go into how like wickedly funny he was or how much people really really loved him. And yeah, I, I do agree that the epilogue. You read a lot about how people got really emotional and cried while reading the book. Oh, they cried during they the cried epilogue. during the epilogue. Sure. <laughs> no, no, that's like like I said, that's exactly when I cried. <laughs> yeah, was during the epilogue. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think. 
I th- one line that really stood out to me in the epilogue was, what happened to Paul was tragic, but he was not a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true. Like, it seemed like uh, even though their marriage was kind of rocky uh, before he was diagnosed with cancer, it seemed like in the last two years of his life, uh, their marriage really uh, not just got mended, but it seemed to have gotten a lot stronger. It seemed that they lived much more uh, fully, I guess. What kind of makes you think that it probably was going to be okay anyways, just based on who these two people were? Yeah. Right. I, that that's how I felt about it. <laughs> uh, maybe just wishful thinking on my part. But yeah, any any I guess any last thoughts about about the book? There's this one passage, um, or just section at least, when he was talking about his last day practicing mm-hmm. and the surgery that he was in, and he was yeah, and it that was, was a good that was a good like section. I yeah, thought. and it was it was and that was the section that had actually gotten published first. Um, in the New Yorker and then led to either it led to the uh, full publishing of the book or he had written another piece. Actually, you know what? No, he had written a different piece for the New York times. And then that led to the book deal. And then he wrote this piece, which then was published in the New Yorker to kind of <laughs> drum up buzz for, uh, for the, for the memoir. But right. he's talking about, um, how he's doing the surgery right around the time after he, after they found this new tumor and how he kind of just thought to himself, Oh, well, it is what it is. And I'm going to go on and just do what I need to do for, for my last day in, in residency. And he's doing the surgery and he has the attending go to finish up. Um, and the, atten- the attending the messes, messes up, <laughs> but his reaction isn't, Oh, well it is what it is. And we'll just yeah. do it like the, you know, his reaction isn't the same as what it was when it was him as the patient. He is just, just immediately goes in and fixes it and it adds another hour and his back is still hurting yeah. and it's not an easy process, but it just goes to show how much he cared for other people. If he can look at one thing one way for him and one thing another way for someone else. Yeah. He was an incredibly focused human being. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our, that's our discussion for When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. Um, hope you guys enjoyed. If you'd like to add or respond to anything we talked about during this podcast, uh, you can do so on our Goodreads forum. Uh, I think the link is goodreads.com slash books and boba. We also have our Facebook and Twitter for people who want to suggest books to us. Yeah. And for those of you listening to our podcast down the line, feel free to go back and tell us your thoughts. Yeah. If you disagree with us, we would love to hear what you <laughs> We, we would love to read your comments. So for the month of April, Rira has made the, the call, the decision, that we're reading The Will Writer by We Team Ihimera. I think I got that right. I think I think you did. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> if Witi I didn't, Ihimera. please um, please yell at me on Goodreads. Yeah, at um, least you'll be on Goodreads. I mean, we were actually recommended this title by a Goodreads member. So yeah, we do take suggestions quite seriously. Yeah. Um, but it's it, a pretty, it's a pretty quick read, right? It's only 150 pages. Yeah. It's like less than 200 pages. And, uh, and there's a movie too. There's I a think, movie. Yeah. Don't like, don't think you can cheat by just watching the movie. Cause they are. That's different. my usual move. I haven't read any Harry Potter books ever, but I've seen the movies. We oh. dedicated an entire episode to this. <laughs> <laughs> I've also never read any Tolkien. <gasps> It's okay. That, that's a little bit forgivable. It's, they're really long. They're really long. I, I will give you that. I had to read them in middle school. It was actually required. Really? Yeah. So I went to Catholic school, and my, <laughs> um, and as everyone knows, Tolkien was really, really Catholic. Um, I'm not kidding. And um, our nun had us read the Fellowship of the Ring when the Return of the King movies what movie was coming out. And so if we as a class read The Fellowship of the Ring, she was going to take us to the movie theater so we could see The Return of the King as a class and just skip school for a day. And we did it. So, yeah. And there's my random story of sixth grade us reading this because a nun told us to. Wow. <laughs> At least it is wasn't it, the is, is it sixth grade material? Like, I, I read this in, like, middle school. Okay. I don't know. Ani and I have really... <laughs> like, I think we read ahead of our time. I was reading bit. like Star Wars Expanded Universe 
and stuff like that. Oh my god, no. <laughs> I tried reading that as an adult and I couldn't. I tried. Well, it's okay. Well, I, I read have. a lot of garbage now. So. <laughs> I do read a lot of garbage. I read, yeah, I, I read I read a lot of YA and I listen to a lot of Daniel Steele audiobooks. <laughs> Um, because my commute is long and sometimes you just need to listen to something that is just super repetitive. So, and that you can tune out and just, it's fine. If reading garbage (laughs) can lead Paul Kalanithi to a career in neuroscience, it's not maybe garbage after all. (laughs) Where else can people find you, Ani? You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Bad Bitches Book Club, all one word. Um, I believe that you can find me on Goodreads as well. My first name's Ani, and I. It's a picture of me with a straw hat and a t-shirt that says, we'll work for books. So, <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to send that out like a treasure map on Goodreads so you can yeah. read. And the, and, the treasure, and the treasure is amazing one-star reviews Thank of you. really terrible books. <laughs> we'll put a link in the um, show notes Thanks. for this episode as well yeah. so you can find Ani. Oh, no. Stuff. We need to make them work for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I. Right. I'm, tra- I'm trying to think of like a good trashy so, example. So. Like you know what? It's like the Ready Player One. Just like you know what? This mm. is my quarter. Where if you want to read more trash, like Ready Player <laughs> One, <laughs> then you can find me on Goodreads. But you know what? I think I actually rated it like four or five stars. I had a lot of fun with that book when I, I read it. It's, that book. it's it's <laughs> it's fun trash. It is fun trash. Yeah. You sometimes you need fun trash, which is like great and then like i said there's daniel Steele audiobooks which is just its whole other separate category <laughs> all right thanks again for listening to this episode of books and boba uh we hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll see you next time bye this episode of books and boba was hosted by marvin yue and rira yu and produced and edited by marvin yue for further discussion on the books covered at Books and Boba, please visit our Goodreads forum. You can find the link on our Facebook page at Books and Boba, as well as by searching for the group Books and Boba on Goodreads.com. Books and Boba is also a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a brand new collective of Asian American podcasts and podcasters. You can learn more about the collective as well as check out our founding slate of programs by visiting the website www.podcastpotluck.com. If you like books and boba, check out this other great program from the Podcast Potluck Network. Welcome to the Drunk Monk Podcast. Have a little seat right there. After this, you have to do something that you don't want to. But for now, it's a Drunk Monk Podcast. Fuck up.